In the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns, travel restrictions, global economic and cultural turmoil, and increasing hostility toward Christianity, it might be easy for the average Christian to take a defensive posture and forget that the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We should ask ourselves, where is our theology taking us? Our Savior, now ruling in the midst of his enemies, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, true churches of Jesus Christ should at all times devote themselves to the cause of advancing his kingdom through missions and church planting. But how should these things be done? We stand amidst the wreckage of a century full of the spread of evangelical pragmatism and false doctrines which were often championed by armies of churchless pioneer missionaries and parachurch organizations. As a Reformed Baptist, we desire to return to simple obedience to Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Christians must seek to accomplish the Great Commission in the way that He commanded. Local churches must lead the way. We hope you can join us for the first annual Covenant Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, taking place on March 17th through the 19th, 2022. We will hear from Paul Washer, Tom Nettles, Sam Waldron, and John Miller, who will encourage us both to think biblically about the practice of missions and church planning and to commit ourselves afresh to these vital responsibilities given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To learn more or register today, visit covcon.org. That's covcon.org. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Um, we come now to the course on apologetics proper, and uh, having concluded our treatment of an introduction to systematic theology, and I entitled part one of this course on apologetics, Fundamental Considerations. Section one deals with the identity of the subject we're supposed to be studying, and, and therefore Roman numeral one, the meaning of apologetics. Apologetics is derived from the Greek word apologia. This word is in turn derived from two Greek words, uh, roots, apo, apo, from, logos, word of science. The standard Greek lexicon uh, gives the meanings defense, reply, or excuse. And its use in the New Testament is frequent. The noun is used in many places, uh, Acts 22.1, 1 Corinthians 9.3, 2 Corinthians 7.11, Philippians 1, 7, 2 Timothy 4.16, 1 Peter 3.15. And the verb, to defend, is used in Luke 12.11. You might want to see how the verb is used because that might not be quite so obvious to you. Luke 12.11, <clears throat> when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense to how you are to defend, to make an apology. Uh, but it's the verb that's used there. And it's used in many other passages, as you can see from the notes. A related noun, meaning without defense, is used in Romans 1.20. This is interesting. When Paul says that uh, 
The uh, Gentiles are without excuse. He uses the Greek uh, uh, on apologetus. Apollo, just a second. On apologetus. And you see, that's the alpha privative at the beginning of it, without defense. Without a defense is the meaning of it. So, and in Romans 1, we are at Romans 1.20, we are told that it is uh, those who are not Christians and who do not adopt the Christian religion that need a defense and are without one. Now, these biblical usages of, of polygia and its relatives show that this word means defense. These uses are consistent with the idea that apologetics is in general the defense of the faith. Even more significant is the fact that several of these uses have pointed relevance to the defense of the Christian faith. Many of these references speak of the legal defense that Paul and other Christians were called upon to make of their faith in a literal court of law. Note particularly the uses in Luke and Acts cited above. These usages are, of course, not without relevance to the subject of apologetics. But even more pointed in their relevance are the usages in Philippians 1, 7, and 16. Philippians 1, 7 For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense, there it is, and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul's ministry is titled, he entitles a defense of the gospel. And uh, the usage in First Peter, which speaks of the defense of the hope that is within us, always being ready ones to make a defense of the hope that is in you, First Peter 3.15. This latter passage especially warrants careful exposition and will be the subject of a such exposition in this or possibly the next lecture. Both the passages in Philippians and 1 Peter assume that the Christian faith is capable of a reasoned defense. On the other hand, the use of the related word without defense in Romans 1.20 indicates that it is really unbelief which is defenseless. Now, Philippians 1.7 institutes a parallel between the word defense, apologia, and the word confirmation, bebiosis. This parallel word signifies, according to one lexicon, to confirm, to verify, to prove to be true and certain, confirmation, verification. This definition is borne out by the single other use of this word in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews 6.16. Notice uh, the meaning of the word bebiosis there, Hebrews 6.16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. And the meaning uses of the verb uh, also confirm it. And the adjective, um, you notice the adjective is the one used in 2 Peter 1, 10 and 19. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. It's the adjective 
from Bebai Oo. And then Second Peter 1.19, we have the gospel made more sure, more confirmed, Second Peter 1.19. Furthermore, it assumes that the Christian faith is and may be shown to be utterly certain. As a result, it may be fully relied upon and thoroughly defended. The common definitions of apologetics are true to the usage of and concepts conveyed by these biblical words. Webster defines apologetics as the branch of theology having to do with the defense and proofs of Christianity. Cornelius Van Til calls it the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of non-Christian philosophies of life. It is thus that part of Christian theology in which we study how we know that Christianity is true and how we show this to others. It is the science, therefore, of replying to the objections of unbelief. Thus, it is often spoken of as the defense of the faith. Such definitions assume that apologetics is necessary because of mankind's fall into sin and unbelief, because there's something to be defended. Christianity, the faith, is under attack. B.B. Warfield, however, asserts that apologetics would have been necessary even if there had been no sin. I'm a little suspicious of that statement by Warfield, but nonetheless, I think he has, uh, uh, there's a truth in it. Um, specifically, Warfield thinks, uh, uh, Here's why I'm suspicious of it. I think that Warfield thinks that logical argument and extended reason, reasoning derived from evidences which do not presuppose the God of the Bible are necessary if we are to have an intellectual right to our faith. And as I will attempt to show you in these lectures, that's wrong. Yet, there is a positive value and need for Warfield's assertion that apologetics would have been necessary regardless of the fall. It reminds us that apologetics involves a science that is not a product of the fall, and this brings us to our second word, the meaning of epistemology. Oh, epistemology. Uh, apologetics uh, deals within the general framework and science of epistemology. Uh, epistemology is derived from two Greek words, episteme, knowledge, and logos, word or science. These root words suggest that epistemology means the science of knowledge. Webster thus defines this science as the study or theory of the origin, nature, and methods and limits of knowledge. It is then the science that answers the question, how do you know? And, of course, you see how relevant that is to apologetics when someone says, how do you know that Christ is the Son of God, that Christianity is true? When they ask you that question, they're asking an epistemological question. Now, observe several things about this science. First, notice that epistemology does not, like apologetics, presuppose unbelief. It is, if I may so speak, a positive science. Epistemology, while it would not have been as problematic or perhaps as interesting in a world where there was no unbelief, would still have been a legitimate study. Second, apologetics must therefore presuppose epistemology or an epistemological approach. I once read an author saying, well, there's no biblical, there's no one biblical epistemology. 
Well, I, I, I just don't think I agree with that at all. I think there is a theological epistemology assumed in the Bible, because I think there is one right form of apologetics, and I think it must presuppose the one right form of epistemology. Much of popular apologetics attempts to defend the Christian faith, however, without a concern or word about the issue of epistemology. Such defenses of the Christian faith are in danger of minimizing the very fact which makes them necessary. It is sin and unbelief which make apologetics necessary. May we assume that such a radical evil has not impacted the minds, and therefore epistemologies, of those to whom we are defending the faith? Is it not possible, if this is the case, that this very reality must be taken into account if our apologetics are ready to leave our hearers without a defense? Third, epistemology has to do with the most foundational philosophical issues. It involves questions about knowledge and, therefore, questions about the nature and source of our knowledge of God. Surely, we may not talk about apologetics and, therefore, apologetic strategies and arguments by which to defend the faith and attack unbelief, which is properly what is meant by apologetics, until we have clarified to ourselves the nature and source of our knowledge of God. That brings me to, in the second place, the necessity of the subject. As we will see in our historical overview and introduction to Christian apologetics, there is a part of the Christian tradition which has tended to reject apologetics as unnecessary and a waste of time. This viewpoint has been associated with what has been called fideism, Fide is the Latin word for faith, hence fideism is literally faithism and implies, I think, the demand for faith without providing adequate intellectual grounds for believing. Logically, then, fideism undermines apologetics because it says that it is not necessary to provide intellectual grounds for, faith, for believing. For this reason, and because it is important to underscore the practical necessity of the study of apologetics at the beginning of a course on the subject, the classic biblical statement of the duty of apologetics must now be carefully expounded. And that classic statement is found in 1 Peter 3, 15. And we must, uh, I want you to turn there in your Bibles then. 1 Peter 3.15, and uh, uh, let's read it. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. First of all, several things by way of introduction. We must remember the context of this passage. First Peter is a letter of encouragement to Christians suffering for their faith in a Gentile world. Our passage, 315, occurs in a section of the letter uh, with, filled with brief admonitions for Christians, for suffering Christians particularly. <clears throat> Notice uh, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for this purpose. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. <clears throat> Clearly, our duty to defend the faith is not suspended by our having to suffer for it. 
plainly apologetics may be carried on even in the midst of persecution. First Peter is also a letter written to young believers, not only suffering believers, but young believers. First uh, Peter 2.2 speaks of uh, newborn babies, uh, uh, likens them to newborn babies that should long for the pure milk of the word. Second Peter 4.4 4 also implies <clears throat> that they are new Christians. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They're surprised because this has only recently happened, partly. Second uh, Peter, on the other hand, is a letter written to the same churches a later and more mature period in their life. Uh, they are those who have attained, 317, a certain steadfastness in their faith, and that's implied in Second Peter 1.12, uh, that they are stable in the present truth. This is the original context of this key apologetic text, then. It's a verse uh, in a section of a letter written to young, suffering Christians. How appropriate, then, for young believers who are members of our churches to be trained to give a reason for their hope. How necessary, therefore, that Christian teachers be able to train the new converts in giving a defense of their faith. But that brings us to its theme. What is the theme of verse 15? Verse 15 is an admonition or command to Christians to defend their faith when they are called upon to do so. The key word is defense. It means a reply, an answer, or a defense. It is often used of a formal or legal or even a courtroom defense. Um, Acts 25, 16, 26, 1 and 2, 25, 8, 22 Timothy 4, 16. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 16 to see this, this courtroom uh, um, a context of the word. 2 Timothy 4, 16. At my first defense... Uh, it's referring to his defense in the courtroom of uh, before Nero. No one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. There is good reason to think that the word then means a formal defense in 1 Peter 3.15. And it's used with two other words, which also have legal overtones in the New Testament. Uh, the verb to ask, well, it's the general verb for ask in the New Testament, iteo, also has a technical meaning when connected with court trials. Look at Acts 12.20. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus the king's chamberlain, they were asking, there's the word, for peace. Notice 25.3. Acts 25.3. Um, and the chief priest and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting, there's the word, asking a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. So um, <clears throat> asking has to do with making a legal request, and a reason... Uh, that word logos also has a courtroom context in some context in the New Testament. Look at Matthew 5.32. Matthew 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the logos of unchastity, unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here again, in a legal context, uh, the, there is... Uh, the word logos is used of illegal grounds for something, except for the, on the grounds of unchastity, except because of the word of unchastity. And, and the idea is of a legal reason or ground. Now, all of this does not, I think, mean that Peter is thinking of actual court trials in 1 Peter 3.15, although they may be included. It does mean that he is thinking in terms, however, of a more or less formal defense to everyone who asks a reason, a legal ground. So it is a legal defense to everyone who legally asks a legal grounds of their hope. Something like that picks up the connotations of the words with their continuing legal context and backdrop. What's the outline? Well, 1 Peter 3.15 divides straightforwardly into five points regarding our defense of the faith. We'll look at its nature, its prerequisite, its preparation, its occasion, and its manner. First of all, its nature. It is to give an account, a reason, of the hope that is in you. That's what apologetics does. That's what a defense of the faith does. It gives an account, a legal ground, of the hope that is in you. First of all, what is the hope that we are to defend? Well, for me, for the meaning of hope in, in First Peter, it's, it's good to see how Peter's been using the word. And uh, you can see it used in a number of key occasions already in the book, First Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so you can see the connections of the word there. Verse 13, therefore prepare your, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 21 following who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. <clears throat> and uh, 3.5 is also used the word hope. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. So the word hope in the Bible is used in these four other places, and it's a hope we can see from them, rooted in God, begotten by the gospel, looking for eternal glory, and which radically changes people's lives. That's what it is. In brief, then, we can say that our hope is simply our Christianity looked at as our hope. It is this we are to defend. It is the defense, then, of the faith to which this passage calls us. Yes, there's a future orientation to it described as hope, but it's still substantially the same thing as what we talk about when we talk about the defense of the faith. What kind of defense are we to make? Well, the term translated account or reason is the Greek word logos. 
It connotes, of course, as we have seen several times already in this course, the idea of a reasoned statement. Raymond, Robert Raymond in his book, The Justification of Knowledge, uh, says the Greek word translated reason is logon, from logos, which root, regardless of whether one would translate it word, explanation, speech, sentence, etc., includes implicitly the idea of rationality, reasonableness, or thought. The Christian is to show that his faith is rational, reasonable, factual, not irrational and contrary to reality. He is to show that his hope is grounded in truth and that his expectation will be fulfilled. This brings us to a first major. I'm going to have one major observation about apologetics with regard to each of the points. Our first observation, then, is Robert Raymond says, the command clearly implies that the Christian faith is fully capable of a reasonable defense. The inspired apostle would not command the Christian to defend that which is rationally indefensible. And so the command implies that Christianity is capable of a reasonable defense. John Brown asserts that this text teaches that this hope is not a groundless one. A reason can be given for it. It can be defended. Christianity is thus not an anti-intellectual leap of faith. Our hope is a rational and objective basis. Apologetics is therefore possible, reasonable, and necessary. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.